This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 10 through 15. Paul says, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. This is God's word. Well, we started on this, uh, this text last week with verses 10 and 11. And of course, this fits into the overall argument that Paul is making. And that is he wants the Corinthians to be thinking properly about those who are ministers of the gospel, those who are instruments in his hands. He wants them to have a proper perspective. He wants them to understand that at the end of the day, they just plant and water, but it's God that causes things to grow. It's God who actually does the work. It's God that causes things to to grow, and it is God who produces the Results And so when he, we get to chapter 3, verse 10, uh, Paul is now going to tell us first, you see it there in the, in the what's called the chiastic structure, A-B-B-A, Paul laid the foundation for the church. Okay? So Paul's, in a sense, and this is what he's going to say in chapter 4, although you have many tutors or teachers in Christ, you only have one father. Okay? And Paul speaks to uh, this issue as one who is a, a unique authority in the Corinthian assembly because of his new, unique role of planting that church, laying that foundation, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. And then someone else is now building on it. And what's, what, what's interesting and should be noted is that Paul does not simply say, you know what, I did my job um, I'm done. Somebody else is working now, and, and, you know, I have no control over that. Rather, he so cares about the church. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, right? Paul had a heart for the church, so much so that it not only was important that the right foundation was laid, but it was also equally important that those who built on that foundation built on it well, and so as someone else is building on it, and then the uh, second part, but let that someone take care how they build. 
They better be careful, and we'll see more about that tonight. And the foundation that Paul laid is none other than Jesus Christ. The person and the work of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the very foundation of the church. And so we saw last week, how can we tell? I think the, the, the question we asked was, how can we tell if a church is founded on Jesus Christ, right? And then we talked about um, how can we tell that we're building properly on that foundation, So tonight, we're going to cover verses 12 through 15, and what Paul's doing here is Paul is is dealing with the quality of the workmanship in building up the church. Now, we're going to look at this text maybe next week or the week after, I don't know for sure, in terms of how it's been misused in the church, Um, everything from being used to justify the so-called carnal Christian theory that there are two types of Christians to the idea that what we have here is some sort of special um, uh, judgment uh, for Christians is more like an awards banquet than anything else. And the fact is, is that Paul's focus, and you you can't miss this if you read the context. Paul's focus is actually that God himself, the Lord himself, is is going to be the one who evaluates and assesses the work of his workmen. And that assessment, that judgment, is a sobering thing. It should cause all of us to pause for those who, who are engaged in in preaching and teaching, we need to take this passage seriously. For those who, who are, are, are laboring in the body of Christ, maybe not preaching or teaching, we need to be careful of what's being used to build the church. And so the passage is, is a warning to us. It's a call to us to love the church enough to make sure that what is built on the foundation is consistent with the foundation. All right. Now, Paul starts off with the building materials, verse 12. If any man is building on the foundation... Now, the way the NAS does this is it's... I think it's actually a little misleading. Now, if any man builds on the foundation... And I don't think that Paul is, that makes it sound sort of generic, doesn't it? If in the event that somebody is building on the foundation. I don't think for a minute, actually, that Paul's concern is just some sort of generic idea that there might be people building on the foundation at some time in the future. I think he actually has a very specific concern. And that is with what is actually going on right now in the Corinthian church. His concern is on who is building with what right now. Now, of course, there's a a general sense in which this is always going to be true from generation to generation. But Paul is so deeply concerned that the Corinthians are allowing workmen to come and to build on that foundation with materials that will not last. And so he is concerned. Now... He laid the foundation. What he wants to make sure is that everybody else following him is building with the material 
that's consistent and conforms to the foundation. This is always a problem, isn't it? You think about, I mean, just think about, for instance, our great institutions in the United States. Think about, um, think about Harvard, think about Yale, think about Princeton, think about so many of our Ivy League schools that even on, even on their buildings to this day, there are scripture quotations about the foundation of that school being the gospel, the foundation being the word of God, the foundation being Jesus Christ. And yet you look at them today and the only thing those inscriptions now do is remind us of of a Christ-haunted past, which is no more a reality. And so it doesn't matter, you know, you, you look at the, the, the way that denominations go. A denomination may come into existence and, and, and be driven by a sense of, of passion for world missions and sound doctrine. And yet the typical pattern is to depart from the foundations. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. We should be, in fact, incredibly thankful when there are churches and institutions that actually stay the course for long periods of time because it's the exception, not the rule. Well, Paul says, if any man is building on the foundation, and then he says, with gold, silver, precious Stones. Now, I, I, I probably don't need to tell you that gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So these six building materials that, that allegories on what these six materials represent just abound. All kinds of incredible ideas as to what each one represents. Well, I, I'm going to, um, I'm going to avoid allegorizing gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And the reason is, is because there is uh, something that's a little more straightforward, and that is, when you look at these six building materials, you have three gold, silver, precious stones that are, that, that have an enduring quality, an imperishable quality, and then you have wood, hay, and stubble, or wood, hay, and straw, which are perishable. Um, on the one hand, the first three represent that which endures, and then the second three simply represent that which ends up being consumed. Now, to be sure, the building materials, the language is very similar to a number of passages in the Old Testament in reference to the building of the temple, which, of course, that fits the context, right? Because Paul is, is, has already told him, you're God's temple, you're God's house, you're God's building. He's going to reiterate this truth in the Corinthian letter a number of times. But I think that what you have is just the idea of you're either building with something that's going to last or you're building with something that's going to be consumed. That's the basic difference. And so gold, silver, precious stones, I think the idea here is those that are building with uh, gold, silver, precious stones are building with materials that are consistent with the foundation. In other words, the gold, silver, and precious stones would be 
that which is compatible, consistent with the message of the cross, the message of Christ and him crucified. Gold, silver, and precious stones would be, would be that which is, which is not only uh, consistent with Christ and him crucified, but also then done by the workman with a sense of dependence upon God and dependence upon his grace and dependence upon his spirit. So in other words, it's the work being done, not only the right work being done, but the right work being done in the right way. You remember what Paul's going to say when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to say, I worked harder. I labored harder than all of them, all the rest of the apostles. Remember, that sounds rather uh, braggartly of him, doesn't it? I worked harder than all of the apostles, but not I, but the grace of God in me. So that I am what I am by the grace of God and his grace did not prove vain. And so the gold, silver, precious stones is that which is done in dependence upon him and his grace and his spirit. That which is consistent with, in a sense, with the, the doctrine of Christ and the spirit of Christ. All right. I can't help, but I had to put this, it's a lengthy quote, and I put it in your notes for you. This is by Frederick Godet, Swiss commentator of another generation. He says, the apostle means to speak of the religious and moral fruits produced in the church by preaching. The spiritual life of the members of the flock is, in a certain measure, the teaching itself received, assimilated, and realized in practice. Either the pastor, by his preaching, his conversation, and what he means by that is his life, his example, the daily acts of his ministry, succeeds in developing among his flock a healthy religious life, drawn from communion with Christ, abounding in the fruits of sanctification and love, and it is this strong and normal life which St. Paul describes under the figures of precious materials. Or the pastor, by his pathetic discourses, his uh, ingenious explanations, succeeds indeed in attracting a great concourse of hearers, in producing enthusiastic admiration and lively emotions, but all this stir is only external and superficial. With it all, there is no real consecration to the Savior. This faith without energy, this love without the spirit of sacrifice, this hope without joy or elasticity, this Christianity saturated with egoism and vanity, such are the wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, stubble, combustible. Should be seen uh, probably in terms already in the context of uh, human wisdom. Human wisdom that raises itself up against the wisdom of God in the cross. Um, uh, any kind of, I, I take Woodhane stubble to be any kind of uh, what we could call any kind of syncretism. Sort of the idea, because this is, this is what happens. The church starts off 
and it's holding fast to the gospel. And as time goes on, there is a, a sense that we need to do more. We need to do more. We need to do more to reach young people. We need to do more to impact our culture. We need to do more to be relevant to the people who are listening to us. And it's not as if, it's not as if people want to abandon the gospel, but what they want to do is to supplement or improve on the gospel. And so they, they, they try to kind of blend things, integrate things with the gospel message. And I, I mean, there are so many r- good examples of this, right? To where, uh, for instance, think about the way that we have integrated the gospel with uh, not just secular, but pop psychology, right? So we kind of bring these things together and what we do is we have psychological categories that we put gospel labels on, but the minute we put the gospel label on the psychological category, we actually aren't talking about the same thing that our forefathers were talking about. And what happens is is the gospel gets watered down. The gospel is actually not meant to be joined together with anything else. It's not intended to be to be amalgamated with human philosophy. It's not intended to be amalgamated with political activism. It's not intended to be amalgamated with psychology. It's not it's not intended to be amalgamated with anything that has its source in humanity. The gospel is always supernatural. It's rooted in the supernatural events of a, of, of a crucified Messiah and a resurrected Messiah and a coming Holy Spirit. And so you can imagine the wood, the hay, the stubble, that, that which is, that which is um, in a sense, sort of um, um, uh, bringing together different, uh, different materials and trying to make them palatable to the world. Wood, hay, and stubble could also be that which is done. Ministry labor, which is done. Independence on self. Dependence on the flesh. Or even worse, going down to Egypt for help. This this happens all the time. If you don't believe me, just come and look at our mail sometime. Some of the stuff we get in the mail uh, that is uh, conferences, seminars, programs for pastors, some of it, is, if it weren't so sad, it would make you laugh. But it's just going to Egypt for help. And so there's a sense in which wood, hay, and stubble is, is not only um, the building materials that are flawed, that are wrong, that are combustible, but also the idea of, of, of too much self, too much kingdom building, too much interest in, in ministry for one's own glory, too much self-promotion, too much self-adulation, too much self-interest. Seeking after the praise and the applause of men or, or after gain. 
All of this, all of this ends up being doing nothing other than laboring and building with wood, hay, and stubble. But one thing is for absolute certain, and that is things have not changed in 2,000 years. The charlatans, the hucksters, the compromisers, they were in Paul's day and they abound in our day. And here's the astonishing thing. In 2,000 years of having the New Testament at our disposal, we are no wiser than the first century church. We are gullible. We, we are constantly allured by that which goes beyond the word. Paul's going to say later in chapter 4 um, that, that the reason that I'm applying these things to Apollos and me is so that you would learn not to go beyond what is written. Wow, what a lesson for us. You don't need to go beyond what is written. And so Paul says, okay, you've got people that are building with wood, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And verse 13, each man's work will become evident. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, that as, as, as a pastor and a preacher, this is where it starts to get scary. Each man's work, each man's labor will become evident. The word work here is a word that is frequently used by Paul. It's Gordon Fee notes. The word often appears in Paul to denote what he and others do in serving Christ and the gospel. And so he can talk about work in the Lord or work among you. Um, and, and he talks like that in terms of gospel ministry, gospel labor, ministering the word of God to people. There, there's a, a few passages that you should at least see in this connection. First um, Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul uses different words for the work of the ministry. and This is actually just a a generic term for work. Other times he uses words that have the idea of intense labor, labor to the point of exhaustion. But here's a a great example of, of the way Paul uses it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, literally, that you know those who, notice this, diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. It's work. (laughs) One time I was uh, preaching up at Nevada State Prison and... uh, The prison had been locked down, but I didn't know it. And it had been locked down because one of the inmates actually was already in the chapel with me and the guards didn't know it. So the count was off. So they locked down the whole prison and they couldn't find this guy. Well, he was in the chapel with me. And 
it was, uh, it was, it was a, a good um, 45 minutes of very interesting conversation. But I'll never forget how he started off. He goes, hey, since, since I got you here by yourself, um, I have a question for you. So you're, you're a preacher, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, so what do you do? Work an hour on Sunday and hang out in a chapel all week until you get ready to preach? That's exactly what I do. You, you nailed it. Exactly, right? Um, the, the way that Paul puts it is, to me, one of the most uh, gripping ways. Second Corinthians chapter 11, I willingly spend and am spent for your sake. That's the labor that Paul's talking about. And so that labor is going to become evident. The work itself, the, the, the materials that are used, the motives, the attitudes of the heart, all of every aspect of the work is going to become manifest. And then Paul explains how this is going to happen. And he says, for the day will show it. Because it's revealed with fire. For the day will reveal it, will show it. So for Paul, the argument is actually quite simple. You better be careful how you're building because your work is going to actually be fully disclosed, fully put on display, and here's how that's going to be done. There's coming a day in which your work will be exposed, will be revealed, and it will be revealed with fire. Now, the day Paul's talking about, the day, you know what day, the day is, right? Okay, it's not just a day, it's the day. The day is the eschatological day of judgment, the day of the Lord. This is the way that Paul would use the expression, the day. It is the day in which we will stand before his judgment seat. And Paul says, the day. (laughs) By the way, the day is not just for preachers and pastors and teachers and church leaders. That day, we'll all be there. All of us. Every last one of us. And Paul says this day is going <laughs> to be a fiery day. There, he says, because in or by fire, it, the work is going to be revealed. And of course, in the Bible, fire uh, is associated with a number of things, but it's frequently associated with the idea of judgment. And so here's the picture. Is this going to be a fiery day? This is going to be a day in which God himself uses the fire of divine judgment to reveal each man's work. You remember the depiction of our Lord Jesus in Revelation 1 and then to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2.18. The Son of Man whose eyes are a flame of fire. The one with whom we have to do on that day is the one 
who sees all things and knows all things and will judge according to righteousness and truth. Now you talk about a sobering thing. Paul then turns around and he says that the the fire is going to, I love this, the fire is going to dokimazo each man's work. The fire is actually going to end up testing each man's work. This particular word that Paul uses, he's fond of this word, dokimazo, says uh, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, to make a critical examination of something. So that's what's happening on this day. Is the God with whom we have to do is doing what? Making a critical examination of something to determine genuineness. To put to the test, to examine, or to draw a conclusion about worth on the basis of testing. This is what assayers do. They test the value of a metal. God will test the value of our work. And so, it goes on, it says, the focus is on the result of a procedure or an examination. And so, here's this picture is that the, there's, there's going to be this coming day in which everything's going to be manifest, everything's going to be revealed, and the work of each one's going to be tested by fire so that the quality of the work is actually tested. And it's tested, um, you know, not... You know, not by somebody making a minimum wage on an assembly line. You ever reach into your into your into your pocket of a new pair of pants and pull out a some little tag that says tested by number five? And then you notice the seams all crooked. You're like, I'd like to know who number five was. They obviously need help. Okay? This is tested by the omniscient God. And so the, the, this idea of judgment by fire is that this all-seeing, all-knowing uh, God, the all-seeing, all-knowing eyes of the judge is going to judge everything about my work. Motives and words and deeds. And he's going to do it with perfect knowledge. And perfect justice. No matter how good a a human judge might be, no matter how wise a human judge might be, there is one attribute that they never have which secures infallibility in their judgment, and that is omniscience. This judge knows everything and he knows everything about me and he knows he knows the motivation behind every sermon he knows the motivation behind every hour of preparation he knows the motivation of of sitting down with somebody and trying to help one of Christ's sheep he knows the words that have come out of my mouth the thoughts that have gone through my head he knows it all And he knows all about you too. So don't, don't go getting haughty on me. Thinking, yeah, you got it coming, Borgman. You're doomed. 
Well, you know what? The same standards that apply to me are going to apply to you too. The God with whom we have to do is the one who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, we get to reward and loss. If any man's work remains, remains after what? What's that? Fire, okay? Fire. So it's, it's like the work has been, been put on some conveyor belt, run through the furnace. And then what's left? Paul says, hey, if there's something left, Don't you know what that day is going to be like? I don't know about you. I'm going to be standing there just, Lord, please, 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 let there be something left. If anything remains. This is why you build with gold, silver, precious stones, because they withstand the fire. If anyone's work remains, that is the work survives the Lord's scrutiny, it receives a reward. Now, I, I, the work which has, uh, which is made of, as it were, high quality, it, that, that which has endured because of its intrinsic value, the motives were good, the work ethic was good, the materials were good. Now, let me just, let me just say that nobody's going to have the same amount go into the fire be the same amount that comes out. All right? Because all of our work is a mixture. Right? Okay. Um, even, even our best of work, let's face it, still has too much of us in it. All right? But here's this idea of ah, a reward. It, it, it passed. It passed the scrutinizing eye of the all-knowing, all-seeing God. And the reward is given. And, and of course, what is, what is the reward? Well, my goodness, a lot of weird ideas here. Paul's already said in 3.8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He's going to say, in fact, if you have your, uh, if you're close to 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 4, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet by this I'm not acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then notice this, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What is the reward? Well, the reward is, is praise or commendation from the Lord that we have served. What would you prefer? Some big, giant mansion in glory or to hear from the Lord whom you served, well done, good and faithful 
servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to just tell you, those words of commendation are going to be so much more valuable than all of the corny stuff that people think constitutes a reward. His praise comes from God. That should motivate us to work and to work hard and to make sure we build with, with gold, silver, and precious stones is to know that I'm going to stand before my Lord and my Savior one day and I'm going to give an account for the work that I've done and if that, if that work survives his scrutiny, then he will say to me, well done, well done. The apostle says to the Thessalonians, I love this. I I think Paul's talking about the idea of reward on the last day. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. I think Paul fully expected on that day when the Lord Jesus returned that there, there would be the Thessalonians standing there converted because, because God had used Paul to preach the gospel to them and having endured because he used Paul to minister the word of endurance to them. And as, as Paul thinks about those Thessalonians standing around him on that day, he says, you're my joy, my glory, my crown of exultation. Now, this idea about reward makes some people nervous as if reward is contrary to grace. Because when we talk about reward, I mean, reward is often in direct relationship to what? To merit, right? To merit. Well, I I want to tell you that it is vitally important that you understand the way that reward and grace actually work together. They're not, they're not actually contrary to each other at all. They're, they are complementary to each other. Okay? So here's Paul. We just use Paul as, as an example. So here's Paul, and what is he doing? He is employing the gifts that have been given to him by God. This isn't, this isn't something that Paul plucked up by his own energy and effort, the arm of his flesh. These are gifts that he's employed that have been given to him by God. And how does he actually employ those gifts that have been given to him by God? Well, he employs those gifts through the power of God's grace and by God's spirit, right? This is not just Paul. This is not God saying, okay, I'm going to give you four gifts, Now, run along. I'll check your report card at the end of the semester. This is God saying, I'm giving you these gifts, and now I am going, by my grace and by my spirit, going to work in you so that you employ those gifts for my glory. And you say, well, that that doesn't sound right. Well, I think it actually sounds really biblical. For instance, work out your own salvation. Does that work on your part? 
Work out your own salvation. Does that work on your part? You better say yes. Okay. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that require you to do anything? Does that require effort on your part? Yes, it does. It most certainly does. You don't get to heaven sitting in a lazy boy on flowery beds of ease. Strive, fight, labor, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't believe in some sort of passive view of sanctification. Let go and let God sit there like an amorphous blob until God does something. No. Trust God. Get going. Move, work, labor, press on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you to both will and to do his good pleasure. Is the work yours? You better believe it's yours. Is the responsibility to work yours? You better believe it's yours. But where in the world do you get the will and the power from God working in you? And so here here is this wonderful sense. So because God is a God of grace, this this is wonderful. Because God is a God of grace, he rewards those through whom he accomplishes his work. Okay, say it again. Because God is a God of grace, he rewards those through whom he accomplishes his work. When my boys were little, this this, um, struck me. Zach wanted to make money mowing the lawn. Dad, can I have $5 if I mow the lawn? It was like this tall. I said, well, I don't think that you're big enough to mow the lawn. Yes, I, I'm big enough, Dad. I'm big enough. Okay. So he goes out, and of course, he can't start the lawnmower. Right? He can't, he can't pull the cord hard enough to get the engine going. So you know what Dad does? Come over. I get it started for him. Well, he also can't push the lawnmower if he's going to push it the right way because he'd be like this, right? So he gets underneath that little crossbar, and he's holding the crossbar. Well, guess who's behind? Me. And so there he is, pushing the lawnmower with dad's help and you know what I did when he was all done I gave five dollars I took out the appropriate taxes (laughs) made sure he tithed (laughs) but I I paid him for the work in a real sense God, God calls us to labor and he calls us to labor and to do the work that's more fit for angels not men And he says, but I'll help you. I'll empower you. I'll strengthen you. I'll do in you and through you that which you could never do all by yourself. And when you do it, I'll reward you. I think that's wonderful. And so Paul says, Paul says, if you have stuff that remains, you get rewarded for it. 
And then, then here's the scary part. If any man's work is burned up, consumed, so it's put on this conveyor belt, goes through, comes out, ash. Trouble. If any man's work is burned up, that's nothing remains. He will suffer loss. Well, there's a way to look at this that really kind of pulls the teeth out of it. Okay? So the work doesn't survive too too much combustible materials. And he labored in vain. Think about that. Think about, think about laboring for 30, 40, 50 years. And then on the last day, to have it all burned up and to realize that my whole life's labor didn't last. The loss... Loss of reward, for sure. The loss of praise and commendation from God, for sure. Now, let me just say that um, I used to have a view of the judgment that basically went like this. Okay, so you don't get any reward, but hey, you're still going to heaven. So that's all that matters. I want to say that that's not the way Paul thought. You don't, you don't see that in Paul. In fact, there is a sense of shame. If you suffer loss, there is a sense of shame. Now, Godet again says, by the perishable work of this laborer, Paul understands the Christian life without seriousness, humility, self-denial, personal communion with Christ, which has been produced among the members of the church by the ministry of a preacher, solely concerned to move sensibility, to charm the mind and please the audience. The loss with which he is threatened consists above all in the proved uselessness of his labor and in its destruction, which takes place under his own eyes." With what pain will he contemplate the merely external fruits of his brilliant and profound preaching passing away in smoke? Then he will see himself refuse the reward of the faithful servant, the honorable position in Christ's kingdom to which he imagined himself entitled, and the payment of his check will be refused him. This is no small thing. This is no small thing. To be standing in the presence of the Savior who did absolutely everything for you and then to find out that all that you did for him just got burned up and amounts to nothing. There will be heads that are hanging low on that day. Thanks be to God for the next clause. 
but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Garland says this is a colorful picture of a narrow escape. A colorful picture of a narrow escape. He is, we say it like this, by the way, this comes from the book of Job. He's saved by what? By the skin of his teeth. He is saved, but he comes out of that day smelling like smoke. He is, in the words of Amos 4.11, the firebrand plucked from the burning. Now, he's not lost. He doesn't lose salvation, but the work is consumed and they suffer loss. And, and, and to have a cavalier attitude that just says, um, you know what, um, oh, it, I mean, I'm still saved and it's heaven after all, so what does it matter? It matters a lot. If you care about the glory of God, it matters a lot. If you care about the good of the church, it matters a lot. If you care about the good of your own soul, it matters a lot. Gordon Feet notes, he says, in the final analysis, of course, this includes all believers, the idea of this judgment seat but it has particular relevance following so closely as it does from the preceding paragraph to those with teaching leadership responsibilities. Paul's point is unquestionably warning. And so I say, pastors, elders, teachers, church leaders, be careful how we build on the foundation. Not just in our sermons, but in our work with people, our counsel to people. Because we'll give an account. On July 1st, which is a notable day for a number of reasons, 1750, so a little before my time. Jonathan Edwards preached a farewell sermon to the First Congregational Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. Now you might hear that and say, oh, a farewell sermon must have gone on to bigger and better things. No, after 23 years of serving that distinguished church, they voted him out as their pastor. <laughs> Can you imagine being the church that voted out Jonathan Edwards as pastor? Okay. Well, Edwards preaches his farewell sermon just by way of historical interest. It would not be his last sermon because Edwards in his humility continued as pulpit supply for the church in Northampton for many, many months until they were able to secure another pastor. By the way, he went on to serve as a missionary at an Indian outpost in Stockbridge, Massachusetts for the next seven years of his life. illiterate Indians 
who could barely speak English, the greatest mind American ever produced on American soil is laboring in obscurity in an Indian outpost because he'd been fired by his church. Well, he preached a sermon, that farewell sermon, and <clears throat> it's just called a farewell sermon. But being the good Puritan, he has the subject explicitly stated. Ministers and people that are under their care must meet one another before Christ's tribunal at the day of judgment. That was his message. I would commend your reading of it. It's stirring, it's moving. But at the end of the sermon, he says this. I have spent the prime of my life and strength in labors for your eternal welfare. You are my witnesses that what strength I have had, I have not neglected in idleness, nor laid out in prosecuting worldly schemes and managing temporal affairs for the advancement of my own outward estate and the aggrandizing of myself and my family. But I have given myself to the work of the ministry, laboring in it night and day, rising early, and applying myself to this great business to which Christ appointed me. That needs to be the heart attitude and the mindset of every servant of Christ. I labor ultimately before an audience of one who will issue a reward on that day to all whose work remains. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering passage. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to take it to heart. Father, we pray that you would give this church body, not just now, but for generations to come, those who would build upon it with gold, silver, and precious stones. We pray, Father, that our children's children would be the beneficiaries of a firm foundation well built upon. We pray, Father, that they would cherish the labors of those who have gone before them. And we pray, Father, that they themselves would labor in a way that honors you and in a way in which their work remains. Father, we pray that you would give us an eye towards that day, a reminder that one of these days the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Father, remind us that in that day 
This perishable will put on the imperishable. And this mortal will put on immortality. And we shall be changed. And death will be swallowed up in victory. And therefore, our labor in you is not in vain. We pray these things in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.